Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we're continuing to support thought leadership in education. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation with Dr. Jean Clinton on well-being and learning. In the first episode, Dr. Jean's attention was on student well-being. In today's show, she shifts to a focus on adult well-being. Dr. Jean is a renowned child psychiatrist who bridges the education and health sectors to create a unified front on children's mental health. In this episode, Dr. Jean describes the need for adults to tend to our own well-being so we can support our learners both in classrooms and in remote learning environments. And thrilled to be continuing on in the conversation. Welcome, Jean. Hi, Jennifer. Great to be continuing this. This is fantastic. Jean, last time we were together, we had a conversation about student well-being and the importance of student well-being and the kinds of things that we can be doing as district leaders and school leaders to really promote that in our schools. We're going to turn the conversation over to adult well-being because I think that we know intuitively that for students to be well in schools and in classrooms, the adults that are working with them have to be that way as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Jennifer, I think the whole area of emotional well-being, of uh, psychological, physical, all of this idea that well-being affects how we interact with our world each and every day, I think has come much more to the fore and is much more important now. We're certainly seeing that as we go through these challenging times and uh, with COVID-19. My experience as a child psychiatrist with the people I'm in touch with is that people are experiencing all kinds of different emotions. They're exhausted one day and high another day, and and they're really having to grapple with this aspect of their life, which quite honestly, I know as a child psychiatrist, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about our emotional life and our emotional well-being and our, our kind of mental well-being. But as you say, it's so important because many, many decades ago, Haim Gino down in the the Yale Center for Child Studies talked about the teacher creating the weather in the classroom. So the teacher's well-being and communication of that affects kids. We call it emotional contagion or stress contagion. And what I learned from teachers is that the principal and the leadership affects the weather for all of the situation, for all of the uh, the organization. So examining our well-being is really so, so important to do. That makes so much sense. And I love the analogy of weather. And when it's cloudy days for an adult, uh, the chances are that those cloudy days will be for the child as well, whether it's the parent-child relationship or the teacher and student relationship. The well-being of each of the partners certainly has an, has an impact on each other. 
Yeah, they do. And we know from science that is evolving that that is happening at a biological level. You know, we can talk about well-being generally and some of the science as well. But so, so some of the science I want to share has been done with teachers and students and teachers who describe themselves as burnt out. They've looked at the stress pathways of the children measuring cortisol, which is a hormone that we secrete under stress conditions. And what they find is when the teachers are burned out, then the kids have higher levels of cortisol. And that is a concern for us, as we'll go into as we talk here, uh, uh, Jennifer, because when you've got excessive amounts of cortisol, it affects how you can learn. So good learning's not happening. Now, one of the challenges is what's not known is, was it the kids who drove up the teacher's sense of burnout or the other way around. That still has to be addressed. But the stress contagion is something that's, uh, that's very real. But the other aspect of it is that when a teacher is engaged, excited, reaching out to students, that the students have a sense of felt connection with them and a sense of belonging, fabulous learning happens. And that is very much affected by the leadership in the school which is affected by the leadership in the district. When we talk about well-being, I want to focus on the First Nations mental wellness continuum framework. So when we think of overall well-being, we think of a balance between our physical, social, emotional, all of that connection, having a balance with self and spirit at the center of it. For the wellness in the mental area, our First Nations people talk about having a sense of purpose a sense of hope, a sense of belonging and meaning in our daily lives. And I think these apply for students as well as they do for adults, but I think they have a different valence for us as adults. So when we think about something like having a sense of meaning in our daily lives, I think as adults, what's really important is that we recognize that we are at our best selves, we have the best mental health and overall health. When our, what my dear friend uh, Stephen DeGroot calls, when our core four are in alignment, that creates meaning and meaningful experiences for us. And, and what does that mean? It means that our needs are in sync with our values, our goals, and our strengths. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of that just now. I'm working having contact with numerous boards and different leadership has pressures from different needs. There was a conversation I had with one board not far from me here in Hamilton and their director of education has just come out and said, listen, stop worrying about the overall expectations, stop worrying about marks, stop worrying about grades. What is really important is the well-being of the staff and the well-being of the kids. So that's happening, you know, uh, 10 miles from me, 100 miles from me, there are directors of education whose their needs 
are very, very different. Their values and goals are very, very different. And the teachers are experiencing massive pressure to cover the overall expectations, to make sure that the parents are doing and they're doing. Do you see what I mean? So those needs, values, goals, and strengths gives you a sense of meaning. And so people are struggling just now in these uncertain times about why am I in this? But what is the business of? So I think for adults, there is more a sense of what my meaning and purpose is than it is for kids. And as we're in this stressed situation, uncertain situation, it is as leaders, we're people. I'm sure are getting their feathers very, very. They're not their just their feathers. Their whole brain very, very ruffled because the sense of meaning is really challenged. In terms of what we know about successful leaders, is a lot has to do with emotional intelligence. And I thought we could maybe we could maybe touch a little bit on uh, uh, Dan Goldman's work on emotional intelligence and leadership, as well as the work of Mark Brackett, if that's okay with you for a few seconds here. That was going to be my next question, is really is, as district leaders okay. and school leaders, how do we support adult well-being? You know, that first venture into emotional intelligence is a, is a great starting point. So let's start there. Yeah, well, you know, I think what we need to be aware of is that these times are evoking different emotions in us that than what we're usually accustomed to in our day-to-day experience. You know, if you think about what, uh, what creates safety for us, what keeps us in balance, well, the things that keep us out of balance are things that are novel, that are unpredictable, that are a threat to the ego and rattle up our sense of control. So, you know, here we've got, they are turning on our physiology of stress very, very highly. But what we know about the people who can manage these emotions that are generated by these experiences is that they have learned and continue to learn how to identify the emotions that they're experiencing, both in themselves as well as others. So their emotion detectives, um, as it were. They're also able to reflect on their emotions and that emotional information. So they can reflect on it and they can manage it. And that's also in themselves and in others. So a huge part of the job of educational leaders at this point in time, I'm sure, has to do with managing the emotion of fear and those around them. Now, it may not come out with, I'm really fearful about what's going on, but it is, why are you asking me to do all of these things? And so the leader becomes Mm -hmm. a detective and says, ah, you know, at the heart of this really is fear. So that emotional detective, the managing your own emotion and the emotions of others. And then there is the ability to focus that emotional energy on the what, what's needed, what's needed to get done. So an example that comes to my mind is one of the things that we were talking about a little earlier, Jennifer, is the wide, wide range of child behaviors that we're seeing. Some kids can't wait to get back to school, but others are absolutely flourishing because they are enjoying exploring their own world and they're learning 
big time, but it's in a different context than school. So a leader would be, rather than seeing that as some kind of challenge, would be saying, well, what can we learn? Why is it that these kids are engaged in these different ways? So rather than being threatened or having teachers feel threatened that kids aren't coming on Zoom calls, explore to see what is going on. Why are kids engaged? What are the emotions are being evoked in myself and in others around this change in direction that education may go in? That makes so much sense. It's kind of that whole attitude of bring back better. That leader that's able to be in contact with staff on a regular basis and be able to frame this challenge and the uncertainty of what's going on right now is the one that's able to say, how can we learn from this when we bring the kids back in? Is, are there some things that we know about how the students have been learning that can actually help us bring back better after this is all over, I think is obviously a really positive way of framing things. Yeah, and I think that the kids are going to be agents of change. I was listening to Andreas Schlecker from the OECD PISA, and he was talking about uh, young adolescent learners. They're going to be coming back and saying, you know, I had fun learning this way. Why can't we keep doing that? You know, and, and so, again, it comes back to what our needs, values, goals, and strengths are will either create attention for us and say, no, 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 we need to cover this fixed curriculum or this core curriculum, or and that's a need that you have because you, val- you have a particular value and goals. Or you can say, well, my need is, and you define education as igniting the flame. One of the things that interferes is our view of stress. And stress in and of itself. And I'm very influenced by the work of Dr. Bruce Perry. And so what he says is we should not be afraid of stress. We should not be afraid of stress. Overwhelming stress can erode our well-being. That's the link to our conversation here. But stress in and of itself is just a demand on our body's physiology. Uh, you know, to, if, it's, uh, if we're hungry, we eat. If we're thirsty, we drink. If we're cold or working out on a big project. So stress is our body's response to a demand that comes in. So it's essentially healthy and it's an essential element to build resilience. You need to be stressed in order to develop the capacities to reach out to resources to, in order to be resilient. The problem arises with how you manage that stress. What's your pattern of stress? And so what we see in leaders and what I was describing in leaders and leadership when kids return to school and teachers and everyone's returning to school is the teachers who manage, the educators and the leaders who manage that are ones who are going to be thinking about We all have stress. Stress is good. How can we make it more predictable? How can we create routines? How can we create a predictable re-entry into things? How can we make the stress that teachers are experiencing and kids are experiencing moderate and not overwhelming and more controllable? That is how you lead it to be, be able to tolerate the stress and develop resilience. And if you have a pattern of stress, 
where kids are returning and teachers are returning and it's unpredictable. The behavior is off the wall, off the charts. It's prolonged. That's when you learn, uh, you lean into sensitization to stress, which feeds on more stress and increases vulnerability. You know, when you hear the word stress, the average layperson thinks of that as being a bad thing. And I think what's really helpful now is you and others are talking about stress as an absolutely normal, healthy part of life, as long as it doesn't get to the overwhelming. And how do you as an adult, how do you as a district leader or a school leader help to ensure that the stress stays at the manageable level as opposed to exploding up to that unpredictable, overwhelming level? And I've heard the same kind of language paralleled with the talk about anxiety, that anxiety is normal. Overwhelming anxiety is not helpful. Exactly. That it is the pattern of your stress, your response to stress is the make or break. So the recognition that I have stress, that recognition that you have stress catches on to that emotional intelligence that we were talking about. Bruce Perry talks about all functioning of the brain is state dependent. And that means what condition are you in? What state are you in, in terms of your emotions? Are you in a state where you're calm? Are you in a state where you're calm and alert? Or are you in a state where you are, uh, you're more fearful? Some people will be in a state where they're terrified. Because what your state is, calm, alert, that affects how you can think, how you can create patterns that are repetitive, that are understood by everyone, that people will come into the school and have that sense of, ah, oh, I know what's going on here. There's lots of learning going on here. Or are you in a state where you're fearful, you're more anxious, uh, things are not as predictable for those around you, and so then that creates more of that intense stress. So this state dependence is really, really crucial. And when we think about it, fear mobilizes some networks. So that emotional part of the brain, when it's fearful, is mobilizing networks that are saying, watch out, be on guard. This is a dangerous place. And it shuts down other parts of the brain, like, uh, uh, like the thinking part of the brain. So I often talk about what we think affects how we feel, affects how we act. So what we think affects how we feel, affects how we act. So, you know, I, what I think is I've called you, I've called Jennifer up and, and she hasn't answered me back. And what I think is, oh, well, I guess she's got another child psychiatrist to talk to. And how I feel is annoyed <laughs> and how I act is say, ah, I'm not going to call her back. Or what I think is, oh, my gosh. Jennifer always follows up with me. So what I think is, I wonder what's going on. How I feel is curious and a bit concerned and how I act as I pick up the phone. So that state dependence can be turned around by saying sometimes what I feel affects what I think, affects how I act. So what I feel is driving my thinking and my acting, that's a state dependence, if I'm making sense there. 
Jean, you do such a good job of breaking this down into steps because, you know, as adults, we do all these things at the same time and we're not really thinking about the different steps that go along and, and the sequencing of that. And it's hugely helpful for teachers that are thinking about how to set up that predictability in their classrooms so that students understand how things are going to be working and when they can expect to be doing the, the next parts of their learning and the same thing for the, the school leaders and the district leaders, the ability to be able to build some predictability so that people are in a more calm state. They might be very busy, they're working really hard, but it's not that state of fearfulness and anxiety. Well, and you know, the other thing about this uh, state-dependent functioning, um, uh, creating this stress a predictive pattern, is it helps us understand that we have been living in a state of heightened stress because this is novel, unpredictable, threat to our egos and, and sense of loss of control. So that is driving a lot of our energy. And as our stress response systems are turned on so much, no wonder we're so exhausted. Mm -hmm. So we can now say, wow, it's not that I'm not up to the task. It's the whole mm -hmm. world is going through this and mm -hmm. expect more fatigue expect everybody to be a little bit less capable of focus. Um, are there other things that leaders can be doing to attend to their own well-being and not just in this crazy time that we're in right now, but when they get back into schools, is there some advice that you have to share for them? There's some evidence in the, and then there, uh, there's also some advice around that evidence. So I read a book a number of years ago by Daniel Kahneman called uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. In that, he talked about decision fatigue and he talked about a group of judges, I think from Israel, who were making decisions about parole. And they asked them, do you think the time of day makes any difference on how you give or not give parole? And they said, nah, nobody thought they did, nah, nah. And then they plotted it out. And what they saw was that first thing in the day, people were more likely to get parole than around snack time. The, the graph went went gradually down. And then after snack time, up it went again. You were more likely to get parole. And then it went steadily down until lunchtime and then went up again after work. So what's the key message here is that you need time to recharge. So if you've got a bunch of decisions that you have to be making, give yourself permission to take a break, even if it is just walking around the office and humming a song, even if it's just taking a snack of a, you know, a granola bar or something, break your morning up in ways that you are recharging your brain. Literally, the glucose in your brain needs to be fired on again. I spoke with judges over many years and one judge talked about, well, you know, I, I want to get through all of the decisions so that people don't have to wait. And then she said, after reading this research, I realized that I may not be making the best decisions if I don't do five minutes on my treadmill at lunchtime. So take breaks recharge your brain by doing things that are soothing. I talked about walking around, taking a snack, deep breathing is huge for that. So in terms of well-being overall, there's a really terrific article in Psychology Today called The Pandemic Toolkit Parents Need. And it talks about some very practical things that not just parents need, but that we all need. And that is building routine and predictability in the day. 
So not inflexible routines that you have to stick to, but, you know, moderate with moderate uh, flexibility. Make sure that you sleep. You're getting as much sleep as you can. And that means turning off those screens before you go to sleep at night. And when you wake up in the morning, don't reach for your phone, but think about something that you're grateful for. Exercise. Now, everybody says you're supposed to exercise, but how many people in this time when you don't have your usual routine are letting that slip by the side? You get up, you don't necessarily do it. It's really important to keep to that. The other is find your calm. And we talked earlier, Jennifer, about the stress contagion and the emotional contagion. We know that when you as a leader are projecting calmness and that you are in control, when you find that place where you can breathe, where you can, that calm place where you feel the most relaxed, when you do things like tense your muscles, and then relax them. When you just breathe, take that gratitude moment. Notice things, listen things. Give yourself four-finger affirmations. I'm loved today. I believe in me. Breathe, listen, smile, love. I can handle this. So these four-finger affirmations. And then the other thing for keeping your calm is called radical acceptance. Let it go. Just realize these are the things that I can control. There may be others that I can't control, but I will control. And what I can't, I'm going to let go. So the practice of gratitude, reaching out to others, all of these make uh, personal differences in the well-being. There are some conditions as well for thinking about well-being in the school that I can share with you that I've learned from uh, Dr. Kathy Short in School Mental Health Ontario, which is applicable across uh, educational jurisdictions. That would be great, Jean, because, you know, at the end of the day, the leader, the school leader, the district leader are the ones that are responsible for creating a, a whole school culture or a whole district culture of well-being. And uh, what are some of the steps that leaders can take to make sure that that happens in their buildings? Yeah, well, do you know what? I can talk about these. And Jennifer, I would really love for you to share some of your own experience because you did such a wonderful job at the board that you were in here in Ontario. And so I'd love you to share that with the listeners as well. But this is the work of Dr. Kathy Short and her team here in, in Ontario, Canada. But as I say, these principles are from an implementation science lens. So it's not a program, plug this in and la, 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 la everybody's going to be cheery, but rather thinking about what are the conditions, the organizational conditions that lead to successful mental well-being, to mental health, to mental illness strategy in your school. So thinking about that entire continuum. So when school districts and schools attend to these foundational conditions, they're better able to sustain high quality practices in well-being. So the very first thing is commitment. And that is from the secretary to the superintendent, to the director, whatever it is, that we are in the business of healthy learners, and healthy livers. That's not those kind of livers these days, but that, <laughs> that, that as, as Michael Fullan is now talking about, good at learning and good at life. 
that we are really making a, a top priority uh, mental well-being, the promotion of mental well-being and the support to children, young people who have difficulty. So that means, one, you've got a cross-the-system commitment. Then you've got a mental health leadership team. We have so many people who are focusing on math priority, on literacy as a priority, and the world is now telling us what we need is kids who have got great social and emotional skills, teachers who have great social and emotional skills, so you need the leadership team. That requires a clear and focused vision on what this looks like. What does it mean to have a mentally healthy school? So the other things make so much sense. You need to have communication and a shared language. You have to be able to assess where are we in our school, our needs, what's our capacity in our school. You derive standard processes that everyone agrees on and shares, and it makes sense. It makes sense within the mindset that you have. Number seven is to have uh, systemic professional learning. You have a mental health strategy and an action plan that we'll hear from you, Jen, about yours. There's broad collaboration that goes beyond the walls of the school to really involve the community. And you're always thinking, is this doing what we said we wanted it to do? Where do we need to have continuous quality improvement thinking? So there, School Mental Health Ontario is a site that I think people across the world would find great, great resources and support. They did do great work, Jean, and uh, I agree with you. I think anyone around the world that's looking for some of that kind of guidance, that's a great site to to head them off in. And um, it was interesting what happened in the legislation in the Education Act in, in 2009. They changed the legislation to say that school boards were not only responsible for learning, but for student well-being as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, set off a whole waterfall of a different perspective on what is education. I think all the research that's come down in the last 10 years shows that there is an incredible link between learning and well-being and that it's not just academic skills, but academic skills and social emotional skills that make not only students successful, but also adults successful. And we did something in our school district where we went out for a a kind of a community uh, approach to talk about what were the characteristics and skills that we would like all of our students to have as they leave our school district. And it came out to five characteristics and five skills. And what was really interesting about it was that the employers were acknowledging that there was that mix that was needed. The parents were acknowledging that and the staff and the students themselves were acknowledging that there was a combination of academic skills and social emotional skills that were needed to be successful, not just in school, not just in an employment situation, but in life as well. And that kind of guided our thinking for a long time. And I know that uh, the school district and school districts, you know, not only in Ontario, but around the world are really trying to make sure that those things come up together. And it's an integrated approach. It can't be we're going to learn about social emotional learning on on Friday afternoons. It's really, how do you look at all of learning that takes place and make sure that there's a balance between developing those foundational skills of literacy and numeracy that everyone knows are so important and embedded in a social emotional learning environment. 
I agree so much with what you're saying from my understanding of mental wellness, you know, health and well-being. I came across a, a, a lovely resource from Ontario that I'll, I'll get the exact title for you for this later because it's not on the tip of my tongue. They had an inquiry question and it was how might we collaboratively create a community that reflects care and belonging so that social and emotional learning is evident, but it's explicitly taught and it's practiced in the everyday interactions among all members of the community. I thought that was such an important way to frame it and to have districts think about because one, as you've said, social and emotional and well-being are such an integral part of what we need, the emotions we know from Mary Helen Imordino Yang, the whole affect of neuroscience tells us how much they influence learning. In fact, she says, I feel, therefore I learn. So it's such an integrated part, but it can't be something that's a program that you just plug in. It really has to be embedded in pervasive cultures of caring, which leads as to recognize again the huge importance of the social and emotional competency of the teachers and the leadership. So I think it was a resource from OISE, from the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, that I'll share afterwards with you. But it's so vitally, vitally important. This is the moral imperative now is in leadership. One of the things that I thought was so impressive when we began in the school district talking about these five characteristics and five skills and how, you know, how would we teach them in our classrooms and how would we have children experiencing things that would help them develop these skills and characteristics. I was really proud of that. The teachers and the school principals and vice principals, they came forward and said, you know, we really need to think about how we continue to develop those skills and characteristics as adults. You know, it's, it was so amazing because when you do scratch the surface with the research, it's very clear that social-emotional skills continue to develop right on into adulthood. And so it's hopeful. It's a hopeful stance because wherever we are right now, as a five-year-old child in a kindergarten classroom or a 17-year-old that's finishing secondary school or an adult that's out in the workplace, there are things that we can do to help ourselves continue to develop those skills. And that leads to well-being, not only in the workplace, but in life as well. Absolutely. And being the brain geek that I am, it makes me think that what is happening when, when you're developing these new social or deepening your social and emotional competencies is you're literally rewiring your brain. That as you learn to be more reflective about your emotions, as you learn to be a better uh, namer and tamer of those emotions, you strengthen pathways in different parts of your brain that can, in fact, lead to a more contented life and better well-being. The neurons that fire up together wire up together. So... Your brain is capable of change throughout life. 
That's one of the things, Jean, that you and your colleagues have really brought to uh, the education systems is that deepening understanding of how the science, how brain science is, how we're learning more about how the brain works and how it develops. And it's so helpful because it leaves us all on a powerful note. We have the ability as adults to really support students that are in need of extra care. We have the ability as leaders to help staff that are dealing with all sorts of pressures, be them at home or in the workplace. It's a very hopeful stance. And I really appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing is doing these kinds of podcasts and webinars that really help us do a better job in schools. Well, we're in this journey together, Jennifer. What we're longing for, or what I'm certainly longing for, and I'm sure you and I will have these conversations in the future, really is a civic pluralistic society is one that has an education system which is really creating kids and young people who can think about themselves and others and their place and their contribution. And uh, whether we bring it from the the neuroscience part that is my uh, geekiness, uh, the tremendous um, knowledge of educational pedagogy, leadership that you bring, we are on the same path to create the civic society and and our kids who are full uh, embracers and embodiments of these principles. Jean, you talked earlier about finding your calm. And I think uh, on behalf of the listeners and certainly on on my behalf, a huge thank you to you because you have helped uh, create a sense of calm and not just calm, but enthusiasm. We can go out there and do great things in our schools and uh, really appreciate all of your advice. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer. A huge thank you to Dr. Jean for sharing her expertise on the link between children's well-being and the educators who support them. Dr. Jean provided us with practical suggestions as to how educators can create a whole school culture of well-being in support of both the children and the adults in the learning environment. Once again, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we have an exciting episode, which was the first part of this conversation. In part one, Dr. Jean focused on student well-being and what we as educators can do to support our learners. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.